Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's start. There's a, um, there's a teaching that I really want to go into. Uh, we, we've been discussing it a little bit, but it's something that's really fascinating me, which is um, this idea of, of the, the letter Shin, but, but more specifically, not just the letter Shin, but there, there are two variations of the letter Shin. And there's one that we're very familiar with. It's all over the Torah. It's everywhere. But then there's this other, almost like mythological uh, version of the letter Shin. It's almost like a unicorn. It's like it doesn't appear, but we know it exists, but it, it's not there, but it is there. So what is that version of the letter Shin? So if you, um, if you, if you know the Hebrew letters, if you were to just sort of like hold up three fingers on your hand, you're, you're making the letter Shin. And I don't know if I shared this with you before. I know a guy who, who, who wanted to introduce that in sort of like, as a, as like, instead of making the peace sign between people, like just sort of like adding an extra finger and sort of like, you know, sort of like saying shalom that way. And he was able to pull it off. He, he was sort of a cool guy. So anyway, um, but that's, that's the letter Shin. But then there's the, there's the very rare and mysterious four-pronged letter Shin, which is exactly like the letter Shin, but, but only it has an extra line in the middle. So there's four prongs to it. And the reason why I say this is sort of very rare and mysterious is because if you look in a Torah scroll, the four-pronged letter Shin doesn't appear. It doesn't exist. There's only the three-pronged letter Shin. In fact, in all of the Torah Shebek Tzav, in all of the written Torah, in all of the books that are considered part of the, the Torah itself, in the, um, in the Psalms, the, the, all the writings, the prophets, things like that, you don't see an instance of the four-pronged letter Shin. So how do we know there is such a thing? How do we know that it even exists at all? So, um, and I just want to, before I answer that, I, ju- I just want to just tell you just how, how far this goes. Because, like, sometimes you'll have one example of it, and you'll say, oh, well, we have one example, one instance of it, and isn't that interesting in this passage over here? Like, for instance, just to make a parallel, um, just grammatically speaking, we have... Um, Five final letters, um, and those letters always go at the end of a word, always. But there is one exception in, in the prophet Yeshaya in Isaiah, when he's talking about Mashiach, in one word, in the middle you have the final mem in the middle of a word. And that mem stands for Mashiach, that's the, the end. So, so all that, all that is, is interesting, but you can point to one exception. So what, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is no four-letter, four-pronged shin in, in the written Torah. It doesn't appear, which makes it even more sort of mysterious, except, except on the tefillin itself. And there's one other place um, that the Levush HaTechelis points out, um, and we'll go into that also. But let's start with the letter, the four-pronged letter shin on the tefillin. Because this is Halacha Torah Misinai. In other words, there are certain practices that we Jews have that we trace back, straight back to, to Moses giving them to us from his experience at Mount Sinai. This is one of them. The fact that the tefillin are black. That's another aspect. We have a lot of, a lot of Halachas from Moshe about the tefillin from Moshe himself. And one of them is the four-pronged letter Shin. So if you look at a... a um, 
at the, uh, the tefillin shel rosh, the one that you put on, on top of your head, on one side you'll see there's a three-pronged letter shin, and on the other side the four-pronged letter shin. So there it is. So, so what does it mean? What is it? What's it all about? What does it stand for? So we've been talking about it a little bit, but I want to go, um, I want to go deeper into it and, um, and, and explain it better. All right, let's let's start off just with um, let's let's start off just with this this one teaching from the Lavush. You see, you see the four prong letter Shin can be can be approached in two different ways. One way is to understand it as the white fire that surrounds black fire, and. You know, we have this, this term called negative space. Negative space means the, the area that surrounds an object. So again, if you hold up three fingers, if you make the letter shin in front of you, you'll see that there's a space around each of the sides. And with the other hand, if you want to make four, four fingers, you'll see that they sort of like come down and surround the three fingers, the three prong shin perfectly. So... So every, every shin, so to speak, has this interlocking white fire, four-prong shin around it. That's Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya points that out. And what he says that's significant of is that, you see, we have this concept. The Ramban brings it in the beginning of, of his introduction to the Chumash, that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So I always want to point out that that you shouldn't think that the that the parchment that the Torah is written on is just is just a functional element. That it's just sort of like the paper that holds the writing. It's white fire, meaning to say that it has a spiritual integrity of its own. So in, in that construct, the letters themselves which are black fire stands for that which is revealed. The white fire stands for that which is there but is not openly revealed. So the Torah has two aspects of it, Rabbeinu Pekaya points out. There's the revealed Torah and the hidden Torah. So the black fire shin stands for the revealed aspect of the Torah and the interlocking, seamlessly connected white fire shin, which is above it, which can't be seen, but is there nonetheless, that is the secrets of the Torah. Okay, and the two of these things interact and seamlessly connect. All right, so in, in that way, we have to understand the white fire shin as, as, as representing, if you will, the infinity of God. Because we've got the revealed aspect of the world, and then we have the rest of creation, which is infinite. It goes on and on and on and on, and that represents really Hashem in His infinity. I'll put it to you in, a, in another way. Two names of God, which, which work together hand in hand, we're, obviously we're only talking about one God, because, but, but we have different names to describe as different aspects. And just to use a simple example, a person can be a father and a grandfather and a husband, and he can be an employer. He, he, he can be all of these different things. There's the nickname that the person has and, the, and, the, um, and all, all the different names that a person has. And if you, you think about yourself, you, you, you'll realize that you're called different things by different people. So, and those different names, 
are there to reveal who you are at that moment, in that situation. So, for instance, if, I, if I'm an employer, or if I'm before my uh, son's friends, I might be Mr. Sex. But if I'm beloved by my wife, I might be Honey. So, given different names, um, which are appropriate for the different situations that I'm acting in. So it is with Hashem. Hashem has different names. We're only talking about one God, obviously. There's only one God. But nonetheless, He reveals Himself in different ways, in different situations. And then we have different names to describe that. Of course, He's not corporal. He has no body. But sometimes He comes down in the revealed form of nature. And then sometimes it's just beyond, 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 beyond. So when we talk about God as the master of nature, we use the name Elohim. And that means God's mastery within borders, because we know we have seasons and we have time and we have all sorts of fruits bloom at certain periods and they don't bloom at other periods. All these things have borders. And God's mastery within borders is referred to by the name Elohim or Elohim or Aleph Dalud Nunin Yud, that, that name. This is God's mastery within borders. But then God is beyond that because God is absolutely infinite. And when we refer and try to conceptualize His infinity, we understand it in the name of Yud Vavke, the Tetragrammaton, this four-letter name of Hashem, which is a contraction of Haya, Hove, and Yiya, was, is, and will be, which is an expression of infinity. So that's God's mastery beyond borders and God's mastery within borders. And often these two names sort of like are, are thought of as, as a pair. By the way, in Gematria, they add up in a very interesting way. 26 is God's, is the Yud Kei and 65 is Aleph Dalud Nunin Yud, which is God's mastery. It means master, Adoni, in modern Hebrew, in uh, like people will refer to Adoni, meaning sir or mister. But it means master. So Adonai, Adoni, it's the same idea of God's mastery within borders. So if you take that, that name of Hashem, that's 65, and, and Yud Kevavke is 26, that adds up to 91, which very interestingly is the gematria of Amen. So when we say Amen, what we're really doing is saying that God is master over heaven and earth. And when someone makes a blessing, they're taking, um, they're acknowledging that this apple, say, for instance, which is revealed, comes from the source which is beyond an infinite. So when you say Amen, you are sort of connecting the idea that this revealed thing comes from beyond the infinite. So, 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 and you're articulating that, 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 um, that pairing with the word Amen, which is these two names of God. So, so continuing on, if you, if you think of within borders and beyond borders, now let's go back to the Shin. The black fire Shin represents that which is revealed, so that's within borders. But then you've got the white fire Shin, which really is an expression of beyond. It surrounds and engulfs, and it's, and it's not revealed, it's beyond, Okay. Now listen to what the Lavouche says, something very, very amazing. He wants to make a further correlation between the white fire shin, the four-pronged shin, 
In the name of Hashem. The Yud Kei Vav Kei. So, 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 so he says the following. He says, the four-pronged shin, the four prongs, correlate with the name of Hashem. Yud and He and Vav and He. So those are the four prongs. Right? This expression of beyond. But then it's, it's, it's even more intense than that. Because he says that the gematria of this name of Hashem, again, we're making a correlation between the Yudke Vavke, this infinite name of Hashem, and the letter Shin, specifically the four-pronged letter Shin. He says not only are the four prongs correlating with the four letters of the name of Hashem, but if you take the gematria of this name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, it's 26. Now he says if you take the Atbash, Atbash is a, another system of gematria. In Atbash, the gematria of the Yudke Vavke is 300, and 300 is the gematria of the letter Shin. So it all comes together in the most amazing way. So in this way, you see that the four-pronged letter Shin, which is like white fire, which is like beyond, correlates with this name of Hashem. It's the same gematria. So, now I want to go further. I want to go further. Something I think very, very exciting about this, this four-pronged shin. So the Lavush says something very, very awesome. Very, very, very awesome. Alright, now let's, we're going to think about the four-pronged shin in, in a slightly different way right now. I mentioned to you that there are two places where the four-pronged shin exists. One is on the tefillin itself. The other, now listen to this, the other is on the first set of luchos that we got, the first tablets that Moshe got, that we got at Mount Sinai. Now, where do you see it? Where do you see it? There were many, many miracles by the first set of tablets. One of the miracles was, see, Hashem punched the letters through this, this sapphire, whatever it was made of. It was made out of like heavenly material. Let's say it was sort of like, sort of like sapphire. So, so there was this sapphire stone, and Hashem punched the letters, or engraved, however you want to say it, but they were seen through and through on both sides, the letters, in the tablets. And in fact, there was a miracle that was done um, by, um, well, well, there were many miracles, but one of the miracles that, that um, the Gomorrah points out in uh, uh, Masechta Megillah is that the, the letters Shin, uh, uh, Mem Sofit, the final Mem, and Samech, like I'll make you a Samech right now, you just draw a circle. Now if that was clean through the stone itself, what about that little donut hole, if you will? That's in the middle. Shouldn't it fall down? It should fall down. And yet it was miraculously suspended there. The same as the middle of the Memsofit. If you draw a square in the air, there's a little square there that should fall down. They remained rem- miraculously suspended. Now I want to give a, just a, a side point. This is an explanation that I came up with. Something kind of interesting. Believe it or not, one of the names of the, the Yetzahara, the, the Sutton, is the Samech Mem. A lot of times people refer to the Samech Mem. They don't want to 
pronounce uh, any other name. So they just sort of do it in shorthand so, so as not to sort of invoke it. Okay? That's a custom some people have. So isn't it interesting that the two letters that we had this miraculous occurrence by in the first Lukos were Samach and Mem. So I would like to give the following explanation, which is that the continuing existence of evil in this world only exists because Hashem makes a miracle to allow it to exist at all. In other words, it only exists by derech nes, by the fact that God, because it's part of God's plan that at this stage in human civilization, and we're not always going to be this pla- in this place, because it says in the Gomorrah that the Yetzirah, the Satan is going to be shechted, it's going to be eliminated. But in this stage of human evolution, human civilization, whatever it is, we still have it. And it only exists at all because God allows a miracle to occur, creates a miracle for it even to exist at all. And that's why we have this idea of a miracle by the letters Samech and Mem in the Luchos. Okay, that's my explanation. Anyway, let's, let's get back to this idea of the four-pronged Shinda. So, so now imagine... Now, now, one of the miracles was, so if you punch a letter clear through... It will read one way on, on, uh, on one side of the tablet. And if you flip it over, if I did it, if you flip it over, it will read backwards. Right? But one of the miracles were, not only did it read the same on one side, when you turned it around, it read the correct way on the other side as well. That was a miracle. Okay. Now, imagine the letter Shin as one of the letters in the Luchos. Now, can you see it? You're, you're kind of looking through the letter Shin, right? Because it's punched through. All right. Now, above it, you've got the four-pronged Shin, right? Because now, you can hold up three fingers again. Those are, those are the holes in the stone, right? But above it is the four-pronged Shin in stone. In stone. Now listen to what the Lavush says. This is awesome. You won't get it yet, but we're going to develop it. This is awesome. He says, you see, okay, let's, let's just get back into the story a little bit. What happened was, we worshipped the golden calf, and then Moshe took the luchos and he smashed them. Now the next set of luchos we're not like the first set of luchos. The next set of luchos, Moshe himself carved, and they didn't have like the miraculous kind of like qualities that the first set of luchos had. In the first set of luchos, for instance, there, there are again many, many miracles, but just to give you one more set of miracles, the entire oral Torah was also on. It wasn't just the written Torah, but it was the written Torah and the oral Torah were all on the first set of luchos. The second one, it was just even though the commandments were exactly the same, it's just there was a miraculous quality that the first one had that the second one didn't have, although the Torah didn't change at all. That's very important to know. It's the same exact Torah, but just, just how it was imprinted on the tablets themselves was a little bit different. Okay. So we lost. We lost the first Luchos. In fact, it says like the letters flew up from the Luchos. The letters flew up back up to heaven. Says in the Gomorrah, 
So, anyway. So, what's the point? The point is, is that that four-pronged shin from the first set of luchos, we still have it. That's what the Lelouch says. That is the four-pronged shin on the tefillin. We still have with us a remnant from the first set of luchos. They're not gone. We've still got it. We still have that connection, that initial connection. Okay, so that's... That's really holy. All right, now let's... let's I want to develop this idea further. So this is, this is me talking right now. The question is, you see, all the Torah authorities say that the shins, and when you put on tefillin, you're putting shins all over your body. Okay? You've got the two shins on your head, and then I tie Chabad style, so above my elbow, with the straps, I make a shin. And then on your hand, you're making a shin. You've got all these shins that you're putting on your body. Okay? So, what does the shin stand for? So, the shin, the rabbis say, explain, stands for the na- this name of Hashem, Shaddai. Shin, Dalid, Yud. Okay? We'll say Shakai. But that's what I just said was the real pronunciation. That's a really interesting name of Hashem. And I want to connect it to the fact that why, what is the correlation between the four-pronged shin on our tefillin and the first luchos? What is the connection between that, the fact that we still have a remnant, and the name, that particular name of Hashem? What is the connection? So I want to explain it like this. Our sages say, and this is very much in accordance with the Big Bang Theory, which is interesting, or rather, I should say, the Big Bang Theory is in accordance with what we Jews have been saying for thousands of years, that when Hashem brought about creation, first He made one single physical point, and that was the, from the foundation stone in Jerusalem of the Holy Temple of the Beis Amigdash. That was the first physical point of existence that was brought into being. And then it expanded out and expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded until Hashem said, Shaddai, which means enough. Dai means enough. So in other words, at that point, the expansion on some level stopped. Okay. So now, why... Why then, the idea of this expansion stopping at a certain point, how does that connect to the four-pronged shin and the first luchos, which were sort of infinite in nature? What is the connection there? So, so let's get into the whole story of the golden calf, and now we'll really be able to, to understand the correlation much better. You see... You see, it says that by Mount Sinai, when we said to Hashem, Na Sevenishma, those words, what happened, which means that we will, we will do and we will hear. And that was called the language of angels, the secret of the angels. See, because we committed to something we didn't even know what it was. 
But because we trusted completely in the goodness of God, whatever He wanted to give us, we, we were there for it. Yes. You want to give it? Whatever it is. Yes, God. Yes, absolutely. And God loved that. That was sort of like, probably like the highest moment that we ever reached as a people, that anyone ever reached as a people in, in human civilization, was when we said the words, Na Sevenishma. It's like we, our hearts and our minds, our, everything was completely cleaving and dedicated to God. The Gemara brings down in, in, in Shabbos, that, in, in Masechta Shabbos, that when we said those words, every single one of us got two crowns. One crown for saying Naseh, and one crown for saying Nishma. Okay? Now, Tefillin is called a crown. Okay? So, we both, we all got these two crowns. Now, part of our chuva, part of our kind of like effort to fix after the sin of the golden calf was, we surrendered our crowns. The angels came and took our crowns away. The way the Ramban explains that is, we gave up our immortality, which is a fascinating idea, because at that point we had actually reached the level of Adam and Chava before the eating of the tree of knowledge. So we had sort of transcended death at that point. But part of our fixing and our tshuva for the, for, for the rectification of the sin of the golden calf was to give up our crowns, our immortality. But the Gomorrah says just unambiguously, straight out, it says our crowns will be returned to us. In other words, this stage that we're in right now is an intermediate stage in terms of the evolution of the world and of mankind. We will have our crowns returned to us, and all that represents. And I don't know if we're actually going to be walking around with crowns. That's, that's not the point. The point is, is that what they represent. So, okay. But now listen to this. And then we'll tie it all together. It also says in the Gomorrah that the sin of the golden calf was a bit of a setup by God. In other words, we were entrapped. That it wasn't, that it wasn't, we, you see, it says that the Sutton showed us this image of Moshe dead in a coffin. And Moshe at that point was, you know, he was the guy, he was our leader. And then he goes up to this mountain and he goes into heaven in this dark place and the mountain's on fire and it's been 40 days and he's not coming back when he said he was going to come back, although, although it was our misunderstanding. But nonetheless... And then we see a vision of a coffin with Moshe in it. It's like, he's gone. He's, that's it. That's bye. Right? So, so there was a mass panic, and we fell. Okay. But it says that Hashem orchestrated that entire thing. Why? So that future generations, no community in the future will ever say, we can't do tshuva. It was to give strength to future generations who will be able to say no generation was higher than the Jews at Mount Sinai and if they made a mistake and their repentance was accepted, ours can be too. That's what the Gemara says very, very clearly. And then also, by the way, it's, it's really one teaching, David and Bathsheba. They say, well, well wait a second, that was also a setup from, from Hashem. And they say, well, yeah, I can understand, lest a person say, the Gomorrah goes on, 
Lest a person say, well, I could understand how an entire community could be forgiven. But not me. I'm such a lowlife. Not me as an individual. And so Hashem brought this, this, this whole chapter with King David to show no, an, an individual also. Because who's higher than King David? So, so, so we can always come back and we can always return. Okay. So this is a, a very, very big subject. But let me just add one more thing. Just, you see, the thing was, just to put it all into context, is Hashem playing games? What's going on? You know? No, it's like this. You see, we really weren't on the level yet to receive the Torah to begin with. That's the truth. That was sort of like a gift. God lifted us up to a level that we weren't there yet because it was time to give us the Torah. That's basically what it was. It was time for us to get the Torah. We weren't really at that level yet to be fully deserving of it. But God took us up, gave it to us, and now it was, it's time. This is all what we're doing since then is earning back that level. But earning it. It was a gift at that point. So it wasn't from like maliciousness that God gave it to us and then he tricked us and then he took it away. That's not the way to understand it. At that point in history, it was appropriate for us to have it. But we didn't earn it yet. That's what we're doing right now. That's why we're still in this chapter, basically, of, of human evolution, if you will. Okay. But what's the point? The point is it's going to happen. We are going to get to that place. That's what it means. Our crowns are going to be returned to us. We're going to get to that place. Okay? So now we can understand what this idea of the four-pronged shin is, why it's relating, why on, at one, on one level it's relating to utter transcendence and infinity, and it's a remnant of the very first luchos, and on the other hand, simultaneously, it stands for the name of God, which means enough. Because at this, because it's, it's telling us both things. It's telling us at this stage, no, stop, enough. You can't be on that level. You're on this level right now. Enough, stop. Boundaries, borders. But at the same time, understand where you're going. Understand what the next stop is going to be. You see how it relates to both simultaneously. Now let me put it another way, so, so that you understand. So I, I want to create a, a mushroom. Imagine someone gives you an enormous, an enormous treasure. An enormous treasure. Beyond, beyond, beyond what you could ever imagine. And then they take it from you. And they put it in a vault. Right? Behind, behind a lock. But then they give you the key. Okay? And they say, not yet, but soon. Not yet, but soon. And you have the key. You have the key. That's the four-pronged shin. You see, because the four-pronged shin, which relates to the first luchos, which relates to our spiritual attainment, getting to Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree, to this level of immortality... We got that and we still have it. The four-pronged shin is that key. We still have the key in our hands to that level. But at the same time, it's behind a lock. It's on the level of Shaddai. Enough. Not now. Stop. But we still have the key. Meaning to say this is like a pledge. It's like a promise that it's coming. And we'll be able to use that key to access this 
in the future, when we earn this love, when the time comes. So, so I want to just, just say one thing about where we are in terms of the period of the year right now. Just switch gears for a moment. Very interesting point right now. We're going from Adar to Nisan. One of the great shifts in the, in the calendar taking place right now. Nisan is the month of miracles. It's the month of the just us leaving Egypt. And uh, Adar is the twelfth month. It's the, it's the period that's furthest away from the first month. And yet, because we understand time as a spiral in more of a circular way, somehow, in just, the, just the, the beauty of the way God constructed the universe, this Adar, which represents the darkest time and where Purim is, the whole idea is that we see Hashem even in His most hidden state, and that's the cause of our greatest Simcha, that's why it's the month of joy, because we understand that that Hashem is even there when we can't see Him, and that creates joy. So, so this month of darkness, the month furthest away from the month of light, which is Nisan, is simultaneously right next to Nisan, if you understand it as a spiral. Right? It's, right? it's right next to it. So it's furthest away and it's closest at the same time. Amazing, amazing thing. So, so this Shabbos, um, the last Shabbos of Adar, it's, believe it or not, we just celebrated the last Shabbos of the year. Right? Most people don't think of it in that way. But that was the last Shabbos of the twelfth month, and next Shabbos is going to be the first Shabbos of the first month. Okay? So now, with that in mind, I want to, make, I want to, I want to pose a question and then suggest an answer. Here's the question. What is different about the way we observed the last Shabbos of Adar... And the way we observe the last Shabbos of Elul, which is the, the Shabbos right before the first of Tishrei, also known as Rosh Hashanah, when we celebrate the New Year. Remember, there are two different um, beginnings on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the calendar. There is the, the um, where we celebrate the New Year, the beginning of the New Year, that we mark in Tishrei. But then we also have on the level of months, when we have the first month of the year, that's Nisan. And of course, there's the famous debate in the Gomorrah, when did God create the world? In Nisan or in Tishrei? So there are different opinions, but we, sell, we, we decide Tishrei. So that's why Rosh Hashanah is in Tishrei. But nonetheless, you have two beginnings in the, in the calendar. So there's a very big difference. There's something that we did in the last Shabbos of Adar that we don't do on the last Shabbos of Elul. And that's, we don't say on the last Shabbos of Elul, right before Rosh Hashanah, Birkat HaChodesh, the blessing of the new month. But we did say it yesterday in the last Shabbos of the year, put a different way, in Adar. So what's going on there? That's the question I want to suggest and answer. First, let's understand, well, let me make it simple. I want to say that there are two types of beginnings. 
there's the type of beginning which is basically on the level of something out of nothing. That's Rosh Hashanah. And you see, like the Katska Rebbe makes a mushroom. He's, he's making a different point, but just to borrow part of the mushroom for now. When Hashem, when, when we have a new year, God brings a new light into the world. And that new light, that light is for the entire year. Okay? And so, um, and it's like a train track. It's like the train makes a stop here, and it makes a stop here, and it makes a stop here. So that light, so to speak, is making a stop at each of the months. And we say, Birkat HaChodesh, because it's about to go into the next, the next compartment, the next month, if you will. So we daven again for all the good things that, that you know, because, for instance, it says, um, it says that our parnosa, our livelihood, is determined on Rosh Hashanah. So they say, well, what if a person is decreed a small parnosa, and yet during the year he does tshuva, so he's deserving of more. So it says that Hashem makes it rain at exactly the right time in exactly the right place. So in other words, that, it might be a little bit, but it's coming at such an exact and efficient way that it becomes fully maximized. Right? And they say, well, what if, and then they say the other way also. Well, what if, you know, the person is decreed a very large one, and then over the course of the year it becomes like a rat. Right? What, what? And then they say, well, it's going to just start raining in ways that he can't, you know, can you imagine, like, sometimes, you know, you see, like, sports stars and things like that who come into huge amounts of money and they spend it on their entourage and, you know, everyone, you know, who has ever known them is getting bottles of, like, you know, champagne that costs hundreds of dollars and things like that. It just, the money just goes. It just goes. So, so... So the idea is that each month, whatever the blessings are that we got that year, that were decreed on, on Rosh Hashanah, we're blessing that, that they should come down in the right way at this moment. Each month, we, we, we sort of like try to retool the light, if you will, by saying, please God, let it come down exactly as I need it right now. You hear? So, so if you will, if, again, imagine that train going from station to station, that new light comes into the year on Rosh Hashanah, and then it makes it stops. It makes it stops throughout the year, and we try to pray that it should come down in the right way at this time for the new month. Okay, well, when it reaches Elul, we can't make the, we can't make the prayer for, for, for the next month, Tishrei, because the train has reached the last stop. Now a new light is coming down. So we can't, we can't, make, we can't retool that light because it's done. A new light is coming down. So that's why we're not saying Birchad HaChodesh on the last week of the last month before the new year. Okay. Because God is bringing a brand new world into effect, a brand new light into the world. So I want to say that's one of the two types of beginnings. When God makes something out of nothing. Okay. But then there's another type of beginning. Because when we, we do say it, we do say the blessing of the new month on the last Shabbos of Adar, before Nisan, the first month of the year. 
So why are we saying it there? Well, what's going on at that point? We're going from slavery to freedom. Right? Because Nisan is the month when we get out of Egypt. Adar, we were still slaves in Egypt. So we're going from slavery to freedom. Now I want to say like this. The other type of beginning is when you're still in the middle and you want to begin again in your current life. When you want to get out of slavery and become free. And that type of beginning is not something out of nothing. That type of beginning means there has to be a level of continuity where you look back on where you've been and you correct your mistakes. It's not just, I just hope that when I wake up this morning, all of my problems are going to be solved. On this level of a new beginning, you can still begin again. You can still begin again. But it has to be a beginning that's built on some level of continuity. Looking back and changing and correcting and fixing. Alright, now I want to say one more thought. And this is something awesome that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitz Rebbe. Uh, from one of the transcripts, actually. He says, the Ishbitz Rebbe says the following. He says there's holiness and there's purity. Okay? What's holiness? Holiness is by the mind. It means that I, I know what Hashem wants from me. That's what holiness is. Purity is by the heart. Purity means that I'm getting rid of all of my anger at God. That's what purity is. Now, he says something really amazing. He says, a person can have holiness until they have purity. Which means that until I get the anger at God out of my heart, I can't understand what it is that he wants from me. 